Hello and welcome to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. We've got a great show for you this week. Vox co-founder and blogger extraordinaire Matt Iglesias is joining us for a conversation on immigration and making America great again by getting ourselves more Americans. About three times more, as a matter of fact. His book is titled One Billion Americans, and it was my favorite read of 2020. I think I liked it so much because it's a book that really seems to enjoy making no one 100% happy while being clear-eyed about a big national goal. Because look, Democrats' immigration rhetoric has gone to crazy town, in case you haven't noticed, or at least to the realm of the politically unpopular. They've let their message drift toward decriminalizing border crossings, having de facto open borders, and saying that you are a bad person if that makes you slightly uncomfortable. The book is optimistic about climate, it rejects the doom prophecies that we're all going to be underwater in 10 years, and Iglesias argues instead that having kids is great. Expanding the size of our population will make us better off, more energetic, happier. Now, Republicans, they are also living in a bit of a la-la land about how America is going to remain a world power with a hollowed-out heartland and an aging population with fewer kids fewer taxpaying workers, fewer entrepreneurs, fewer everything. I mean, if our future hinges on millennials and Zoomers suddenly reproducing in mass because Mitt Romney adjusted their annual tax burden, we are screwed. Our choice is not between a wall on the southern border and a total free-for-all. It is not between emptied out main streets and living packed shoulder to shoulder. Matt Iglesias is going to help break down why. Now, before we get into that, can you do me a favor? Hit that subscribe button for the show on YouTube and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at RightlyAJ. If you've already done that, thank you. Now tell your friends. Uh, Leave a comment about the show on YouTube. I will respond personally. Would love to hear from you. Well, I am thrilled to welcome today a new friend of the show and co-host, Wadi Gaitan. Wadi is the national spokesman for the Libre Initiative, a Latino conservative advocacy group. Before that, he was the director of communications for the GOP of Florida, and he's been involved with Republican political campaigns, including Romney's in 2012. Welcome to the show, Wadi. It's nice to finally have you here. Likewise. It's a lot to talk about today, so excited to be here. There is, and we're going to be doing that with our guest in the third corner. Please welcome Matt Iglesias. He is the co-founder of Vox and the curator of Slow Boring on Substack and the author of a book, One Billion Americans, which we'll be talking about today. Matt, welcome. Hey, really glad to be here. How's the book been going? It came out months ago. The world has changed a lot very fast. (laughs) There's a lot going on, but, you know, it's gone well. Uh, You know, sold some copies, and I've been glad to have some interesting conversations. You know, I wanted to write a book that I think doesn't just track the kind of basic polarization dividing lines in politics today. And, and you know, I think I've succeeded at that. And Ezra did that one, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he wrote about polarization. Yeah. I'm transcending polarization. Transcending it all. Well, I want to I get into the book because you've done so many interviews on this from different angles. Um, there's just different ways we can start. So I want to begin with the big picture of what's mm-hmm. going on in the world. So with One Billion Americans... You're making a case about we cannot rest on our laurels, that America is just always going to be number one. And just last week, I guess it was two weeks ago, Iran and China signed a cooperation deal for economic stimulation. China's going to be pouring billions of dollars into Iran for infrastructure, technology, comms, all sorts of stuff. And there's a temptation on the one hand to be like, 
you know, this is not a big deal. Like, it's just, you know, regular business as usual on the world stage. And then the other hand of it's like, the forces of Mordor are gathering together. <laughs> we can't just sit back and do nothing about this. What did you think of that agreement? And does it play into your premise that the world is changing under our feet very fast? Well, you know, I mean, Iran is a special case in a lot of ways, but I think it underscores the fact that, you know, we want to live in a world where if countries have to choose between an economic partner, that the United States is clearly the better choice, right? And 10 years ago, that was obviously true. Today, it's a lot closer, right? If Iran has to be with China for its economic well-being, mm -hmm. that may be okay, right? Even if the U.S. cuts them off. And then how's it going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, right? Don't we want to be, isn't it? We take for granted that you want to be a sort of trading partner with the United States of America and that countries that are free to choose will choose us. And that if we want to punish you, as I guess we do with Iran, we can do that, right? But as the gap between the U.S. and China keeps closing, and as the scale of China's markets, because there's so many people there, uh, weighs more and more heavily in the world, we lose all kinds of leverage that we have just been so used to over the past couple generations. Yeah, I think when the culture wars are raging in America, we are upset about like Hollywood, right? Like making movies that cater to Chinese markets. Marvel removes a, a Tibetan <laughs> monk, right? From a, from an Avengers franchise movie. Star Wars changes because of China. Like th the solution to that is to be more competitive to these, these foreign countries who are sort of gobbling up more market share. Um, do you really think about like hard power numbers and the amount of people as being what drives national greatness and like who's going to be dominant on the global stage? I mean, it's not just the amount of people, right? I mean, China, India had more people than us in 1980. Yeah. But those countries were incredibly poor, right? They're not as poor now as they used to be. Uh, they, they've caught up. And I think, you know, it's good mostly that they have caught up. And even if it isn't good, it's like, what are we going to do about it? You know, like your our national policy can't be we're going to try to make China poor forever. Uh, a, it wouldn't work. B, it would totally poison the relationship. It's unethical too. for for That's good reasons. Good. Yeah. And C, like it doesn't like it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, you we would be totally isolated on the world stage if we said America's plan for the future is to keep large third world countries impoverished forever, right? So like that can't be the plan. And then size does matter, right? The reason the United States is a major power on the world stage and Canada isn't is that there's 10 times as many people here, right? Canada's a perfectly nice country. You know, they're doing well. It's a good place to Doesn't live. pay to be nice. Um, yeah, well, but you know, <laughs> it's not just that, but it's that, you know, if you want to count in sort of the global councils of power, you need to be large. Uh, and that's what the United States is. That's why our intervention in the world wars was so decisive. It's why we were the anchor of the, so, you know, the free world and the Cold War era. And I think that that's not something that Americans are willing to give up, nor should we be willing to give it up. You know, I'd be curious to ask, so the, I guess the premise a little bit is like, keeping America great, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for a, a certain demographic within, especially <laughs> Republican voters, conservatives, that idea is one that they get on board very quickly. I think more progressive folks uh, can get on board with that idea, but maybe from a different angle, maybe not saying make America great, but I think both sides might come and say, why the number a billion? Mm -hmm. uh, but also, can we get 
or keep greatness through other ways, right? So a conservative could say, well, if we just grow our economy through deregulation, through expanding the free market and making sure that more, more people can participate, empowering uh, businesses and the entrepreneurs, isn't that a maybe easier or a more American way than tripling the size of our nation? Well, you know, a growth, economic growth per capita growth is very important. We should do that stuff. I, I think if you look at the sort of economic literature or just history, right, it's really hard for a country that's already rich to stop poorer countries from sort of catching up, right? Because there's so much low-hanging fruit that the Chinese, the Indians can do, whether you come at it from a free market perspective or, or any other perspective. You know, they can they can copy our stuff, basically. They can copy our policies, they can copy our ideas, they can copy mm -hmm. our technologies. I also just dispute that it's somehow un-American to look to population growth and immigration as a strategy, right? That if you look at sort of the founding fathers and how they talked about the country and how they talked about immigration, it was from a patriotic viewpoint, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't yeah. from a sort of contemporary left, um, like borders are bad, the nation is bad kind of viewpoint. But it also wasn't from this perspective of threat that I think you see mm -hmm. a lot from contemporary Republicans that like somehow our culture will go away, mm -hmm. right? That the idea was that our culture is actually really good and that it's attractive to a lot of people and that the opportunities here are really good. And we should try to welcome people to, I mean, in the 18th century, like literally settle the country. Uh, today, we don't need that kind of, you know, homesteading work in such a literal way. But it's still true that like more people adds to our capabilities. I'm glad you mentioned the bit about strategy and like the reason why we want to grow. Because one of the things that frustrates me is anytime you turn on cable news, the talk about immigration is like of it being a virtue, that it is a natural good, that there's an outcome, which is diversity in the nation. And that's an end in of itself. Rather than we have national goals and immigration as a tool in the toolkit to achieve those. And, and you mentioned it, like the American left has kind of like gotten away from thinking strategically about immigration. How did it get to be that way? And is it possible to turn back the dial a little bit so that we can think about immigration in terms of being a tool and not just a virtue? I mean, I hope so. You know, after the sort of collapse of, of bipartisan immigration stuff in 2007, 2013, we moved from a conversation about what should our immigration policy be to how strictly should we enforce the status quo policy, right? And I don't think anybody really thought that our 2013 immigration policy was perfect. But because they couldn't agree on a reform, it came down to Republicans just like pounding the table on enforcement and left-wing people increasingly sort of discrediting the idea of enforcement. So now we have this situation, right? People are at the southern border and it's a political crisis for Joe Biden. It's supposed to be bad that like anybody wants to come. And then on the left, it's inhumane that you detain people when they're breaking the rules. And it's this very... But also America's a horrible place and they shouldn't well, want to come yeah, here. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, well, None of it makes sense. I mean, I think it's a little bit confused, right? Instead of saying, look, a fact about the world is that lots of people want to come here, yeah. that America is a good place to live. A lot of people would like to live here. We are not going to open the doors to absolutely everybody who wants to live here, but it's not bad for people to come here, right? And so we can think about who do we want to come in, on what terms, and how many? And I think the answer is, you know, we should be quite welcoming. We should welcome a larger number of people than we currently are. And part of that is maybe being more selective in a certain sense about who comes in. 
reasonable people can disagree, I think, about exactly what the right criteria are for who we should let in. But I think we should let more people in and we should have a conversation that's focused on that. Like, who strengthens the country and how can we streamline the process for those kind of people to come here legally instead of only talking about what do we do with people who are breaking the rules? What are some of the key factors that you look there? Because I do agree with you that on immigration, I I think we've zeroed in on inflection points, right? Mm -hmm. People crisis at the border, uh, refugee crisis, debates on the number of immigrants, because there has been a conversation actually of drastically reducing the current levels that we have, which is approximately around a million. What what are the key factors that you would look for? Because on a merit based system, there's there's different ways. Right. Mm -hmm. But people would say if we're only attracting people and everyone starts going to Silicon Valley and population growth is only centered in New York, L.A., like what happens to rural America? I mean, where is the interconnectedness and what are the key factors you look for in a an immigration reform mm-hmm. that would allow us to get to to where you say one billion? So I think one really interesting idea that the Conference of Mayors endorsed and that, you know, has some interesting support from people in the Midwest is to sort of let certain cities that have lost population opt into extra immigration, right, and try to get mm-hmm. people with college degrees, maybe technical degrees from abroad and say, yeah, like if you want to come live in Cleveland, live in Detroit, live in Toledo for five years. Is this the national renewal visa? Yeah, I call, idea? It, I call it a national renewal. There was a- You coined that? Um, it was a heartland visas is what the economic innovation okay. group called it. Um, I, for persnickety reasons, don't yeah. like that word. Um, but you know, the Made idea- Made up his own then. I like that. <laughs> but you know, the idea being, look, instead of us like outsourcing computer work to people in Bangalore, like let those companies invest in America's cities that have lost people. Let the skilled workers from foreign countries come into there. Let sort of new growth ecosystems come up. Let them stabilize the tax base. Mm -hmm. And also let the local officials decide, you know, if people don't want more immigrants coming into their community, I, I don't agree with that. That's not my personal preference. I grew up in New York. I live in Washington, D.C. But I think that if we could be less stigmatizing in our language about people who like things the way they are, sure. to try to get more openness that people in places that don't feel that way could embrace more immigration and more change. This is a little bit of an uphill battle, if I may challenge you just a little. <laughs> I'm, trying to think, I'm trying to think of some folks who might say that uh, while they might welcome a larger workforce, right, in some of these rural mm-hmm. areas, these heartland visas, uh, the cultural aspect might come up, right? What happens to, to again, sort of this this uh, America that we know, right? Are people going to still assimilate? It's questions that they ask. Mm-hmm. And I think data shows that people do assimilate, but that's at a million immigrants coming in a year. What happens when those numbers, again, are, are drastically larger? Are there concerns on that end? I mean, you know, people worry about this. I feel more sanguine about it. I think you probably have an interesting perspective on this. I mean, I wish more conservative people would think about the state of Florida, right, which is a state that has had tremendous amounts of immigration. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's had some of the, not just large quantities, but some of the least controlled migration, right? Because a lot of people from Puerto Rico come in. They're not legally immigrants. Uh, Cubans have a sort of special status under American law. It's obviously true. You go to my Miami, it's different from the average American city, and that's because of the migration Mm -hmm. and the internationalization. But it's also a state that has, if anything, become a little bit more conservative in the past 20 years. And, you know, so Republicans have had to put in the work to sort of... 
communicate with those communities, but it's like not impossible, right? It's not like somehow every single person whose ancestors come from Latin America is like a super left-wing Democrat. It's actually just the opposite, right? And and I wish conservatives had a little more confidence sometimes in like their own ideas that we can pitch this to people. And I hope that's a good outcome of the 2020 election that Trump invested in Rio Grand Valley Mm -hmm. and he found a lot of new voters there, right? And that we can then talk in a sort of rational way. Like, isn't Miami better off for all those people who've come from abroad? Like, isn't that why it's like such a cool city, such a major center of finance? And, you know, the politics follows from like, you got to do the work, but it's very possible. Did you see Tucker Carlson's bit about the nation being overcrowded Uh and that overcrowded nations are ugly and unhappy? What did you make of that comment? And why is it wrong? Because I know you don't agree with that. Um, But like, this is this seems to be what everybody believes. Like you just talk to people out on the street. They're like, yeah, there's too many. There, there's not enough. There's not enough room here. You could talk to somebody in the middle of North Carolina, like in Greensboro, the, the middle of the, the state, and they'd just be like, yeah, I don't want more people here. That's the bias. We just have this negativity bias towards that. I mean, that. you know, some people do, right? And and one thing I do want to say, right, is that America is really big. It's a really big, quite empty yes, country. And you know, Tucker Carlson's personal life trajectory, in which he is now spending more time in rural Maine. Like, that's great. He's right? a DC guy, right? No, but I mean, originally, <laughs> right. But like, it's a, actually separate from his politics and his personal life. It's like a very sensible move, right? Like, you can, if you want to live in a sparsely populated portion of the United States of America, we have a lot of great options for you. I love Maine, too. So, like, that's something Tucker and I have in common. Um, you know, growth, it's interesting to me. Uh, my, my wife is from Texas. So, since I met her, I started spending more time in the San Antonio area. And Texas has had this incredible population growth. A lot of that's domestic migration. Some of it's international. And it's interesting to me how proud Texas elected officials are of that. Rick Perry brags about it. Greg Abbott brags about it. Then the Democratic mayors in San Antonio and Dallas, Fort Worth, they all brag about it. It's very different from the East Coast mentality, where you have a lot of sort of like left-wing hipsters who are like, oh, it's terrible new people are in this city. And then you have kind of like cranky rural conservatives who are like, oh my God, I hate human beings. Um, My barista spoke Spanish. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like possible, separate from partisan frames, to just like have a different attitude to the fact that people want, like, it's dynamic. It's interesting that new things are being built. It creates a lot of opportunities for people. Um, I agree, like, you don't want us to become the most overcrowded country on Earth, but we're so far from that, right? We are at uh, one-sixth of the population density of Germany, uh, about a tenth the population of the United Kingdom. And those are like nice, clean countries, you know, it's fine. Switzerland, which is like the canonical clean country, is much more populated than the United States is. So we got a lot of space. I mean, I was driving recently from North Carolina back up to Virginia where I live, and I went through this town, uh, Amherst, Virginia. It's a population of 3,000, stopped there to get coffee. And it was just, there's MAGA signs everywhere still, like post-election Trump stuff. And there's this one house, right? And it, this big house, it's covered in signs, mm. every like inch of it. Like they turned the house into a MAGA sign with a thing of Donald Trump on the front doors, like a welcome sign. It was the most Trumpy thing I'd ever seen. And I would imagine, assuming if I knocked on that door and asked them, <laughs> do you want more immigration? They would say no. I just, that's what I assume. 
But I also assume they look at their town, which is dead. Like there's nothing going on in the downtown except for one coffee joint. They would go, I don't like this either. But they don't want to bridge those two things together. And when I was sitting in that shop, the first kid in that entire town I saw all day was a Latino family. Sure. They had two kids in tow, one in a stroller. And I was like, there's your youth. There's your energy. Because it's not going to come from here. Like, babies aren't going to just pop up out of holes. Yeah, and you know, when I've been to places like Rochester, New York, or, uh, you know, Rumford in Maine, and bigger cities yeah. like St. Louis and Cleveland, like, it's sad, right? Like, people don't want cities that are empty and just, like, big surface parking lots yeah. or all of downtown. And people really don't want small towns that don't have any children in them. Like, people like small towns, right? And they like the community that it offers. But, like, what's that for, right? Like, what's the sort of comparative advantage of the small town? And, like, it's for families and, and children. And mm -hmm. when you see, I mean, I see, like, churches that have closed down because nobody lives there anymore. No um, you know, uh, general stores, you know, you can't find a new owner because people are leaving. And you can blame that on Walmart or something like that or Amazon. Uh, but then you look at the population statistics and it's like, well, of course, stuff is going to close down in a city if it doesn't have any people or if the people are all senior citizens. And it becomes a trap, right? Because you might be a young person. You might want to stay in your hometown. But if there's nobody else growing up there, then there's no opportunities for you. There's nothing for you to do. There's no work for you. And you have to go move to someplace else. And if you have a sort of, uh, you know, a, a rising tide of growth, all different kinds of communities can support people who have like normal human ambitions and we can have a better life. Well, I really like your example of the, the rising tide because I, I remember growing up, I went to a Hispanic church with my family and eventually the American church bought their own new building and sold us their old one. The, the beauty of that is now there's two churches, but there was still that community. We would go to, over to the larger church on Easter weekend or for Fourth of July gets together. So I think that's a real good example as new waves of, of Americans come in, how this older building it wasn't old, but it was an older building was still preserved and it was still part of the community. Um, and, and it also speaking of uh, Texas, when we mm -hmm. talk about the the population growth and the role of immigrants and, and new voters, conservatives have been able to to fight for those votes. At the end of the day, politicians are incentivized through votes. They're incentivized through elections. What role uh, are, are politicians going to play? Is government going to play if we're going to reform our immigration system, but also create other incentives or an environment where people, mm -hmm. where we can grow that population to a billion? Yeah, so I mean, we've been talking a lot about immigration here. I, I The other sort of half of the agenda is help people have more children, that the size of the American family has been shrinking. And what's interesting is that the number of children people say they would like to have is not really falling. Instead, what's happening is people are saying it's financially difficult to have kids. You're saying people still want to have two or three kids, but they're just not yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, desired fertility is about two and a half kids. Uh, actual fertility is about 1.7 kids. Uh, uh -huh. Of course, we don't have fractional children, but, you know, we do have averages. Uh, so, you know, we're sort of missing almost one child per, per woman. And it comes largely from the sort of financial stresses associated with parenting and raising children these days. And there's a big role for policy there, right? And there are sort of progressive ideas, like put more money into childcare, and there's more 
conservative ideas, like, you know, deregulate some of the things that have raised the cost of children. I think people can can argue about all the points and the sort of uh, conceptual design. But what I would love to see is a politics where that's something politicians are arguing about. Mm-hmm. Right. We didn't see yeah. a debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump about whose agenda to help make it more affordable to raise children was better. Instead, we saw basically both of them ignore it or Democrats will talk about um child care through this very particular lens where they say that child care costs are a barrier to sort of college-educated professional women's career aspirations, right. mm-hmm. which is true, but that's a sort of a very narrow view very of like what the issue yeah, they, is. They make their child care plans to fit the Liz Warrens of the world. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. So it's, it's, it's a particular thing because children family policy is done in the Democratic Party, mostly by women. If you are at the point in life where like you are a United States senator or you are helping a presidential candidate craft her childcare policy, you are a very successful and ambitious person. So they kind of write policies that are suited to the specific concerns of very successful and ambitious people. Most people have like have a job right? Not a career. And you want a job because you want to support your family. But that's harder if the cost of childcare grows faster than your wages, right? So that's like a very basic kind of problem. And it's the exact kind of thing politicians could be and should be talking about more, but really kind of haven't been. The most recent stimulus package included some stuff like this, right? You can you can probably explain the details. There's some child tax credits that are now going to be worked in. There were subsidies going to daycares. Are you optimistic about that? Or do you think that was just kind of like throwing money at the wall, hoping something sticks? So child tax credit, I think, is a good idea. I think Mitt Romney has a sort of version of this yes. that is a little bit... Um, it's structured to be a little more friendly to conservatives' concerns. He didn't get any co-sponsors for his trouble, so that makes it hard to win. That says um, a lot, yeah. No, but I mean, I think that this is, you know, sort of part of the issue, right, is that, like, I'm a, you know, I'm a liberal person, so I kind of wrote down sort of mostly progressive versions of these ideas. But when conservatives want to engage on a topic and say, okay, what's a conservative way of making it more affordable to have kids? Like, I'm sure you guys can come up with something, right? It's if we completely ignore the subject or just say like ah that idea is bad like that's where we don't get anywhere something i learned about after the book came out is that um we have mandated car seats for older and older children and when oira does the cost benefit analysis on that they find very 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 small benefits uh but they also say that the costs are really low because it's like you already have the car seat so you just keep your kid in it And what the researchers pointed out is that, well, if you think about going from two children to three children, keeping the oldest kid in the car seat is actually very expensive, not just because you can't reuse the seat, but because you can't fit three car seats in the back seat of a normal car. You got to get a new car. So you got to get a whole new bigger car, right? And they calculate there's actually thousands of children not born every year. They attribute to the cost of these older car seat mandates. Do do you really think that like people like think about their... Their child, no, no, like, no, no, look, obviously people don't, but like, you know, you, you're married, you got a kid, right? Yeah. People don't like, oh, well, this regulation means we can't have a baby, right? Yeah. But the cost is part of the <laughs> overall stress that goes into the calculus of like, the stress. No, of I, like, I'm exhausted with this, I can't do it, right? Or, it's the housing for or, me. Well, right? or, like, or it's, or it's, well, we can't do it, right? I mean, because having children, it's a biological process, yes. right? <laughs> so you feel, okay, well, I need to be making a certain amount of money before we can do this, yeah. right? And so it all kind of factors up. You might think, oh, well, we'll have a third kid, but it turns out it's too late 
late for you, right? Or the costs turn out to be more than you expected because you knew about childcare, but you kind of forgot about summer camp, right? Like there's like a million things happening, right? And if we don't address that stuff, if you treat it as a purely free market thing, right? Total libertarianism say, well, Capitalism says we should have fewer children, but we should be happy with it because we have Netflix. Mm-hmm. We have Spotify. Like, look how much better your entertainment options were than your grandparents. But, like, I think a normal person, either a progressive person or a conservative person, says, wait a minute. Like, no, we can't just trade off, like, do we have families with do we have streaming movies, right? Yeah. Like, there's a value in these things that, like, the market does not value parenting and raising children so we need to do something to make it possible i do feel like it's run adrift like we are not having the society and the free market mechanisms push us towards the things that we say that we value and we're asked by a pollster Um, you mentioned conservative solutions and i I think the thing that i keep coming back to is like housing Mm -hmm. that's my main thing that stresses me out when i think about where i want to move how many kids we might like to have Mm -hmm. it's just like it just can't do it and then also you can't find the house depending on where the jobs are going to be, where mm-hmm. the prosperity is going to be. I'd love to move to the middle of nowhere. But until COVID, I was always kind of unsure that you could <laughs> do work from the middle of nowhere and still be in this business. Um, those solutions, I don't really understand exactly the details of them. I mean, mostly I understand it's like illegal to build more houses in the Northern Virginia area. There's not more supply available. Well, that brings, so who's having this conversation? I'd be curious. So I'll, I'll be honest, before reading your book, I had never really heard someone talk about the the need for one a billion but two talking about increasing our numbers so is there anyone especially after writing the book any politicians any leaders mayors or families organizations that that are looking into this that are saying we're gonna because most of the programs we just discussed now the incentive at the end of the day it's not really uh, increasing our population right mm-hmm. we talked about the child care aspect i think the approach there has been How do we make sure that mothers have an opportunity to Mm -hmm. go back and they're not left behind or fathers? Uh, Is anyone have any conversation strategically around population? The one billion Americans agenda. (laughs) I I, I don't think we quite have had that yet. I mean, I do think, again, like Senator Romney, right, you know, he's Mormon. He's representing Utah's very large families there. And I think it's closest to discussing uh, sort of child policy in that frame that like we want to help people with their family aspirations that they actually have, including, you know, cash benefits for stay at home parents Mm -hmm. instead of exclusively subsidized to the kind of daycare system. I think that the strategic conversation in Washington is really kind of dumb. You know, like I've had a lot of interesting conversations. I've been on a lot of interesting shows, always kind of general politics people, uh, the people who do the farm policy stuff, like they don't seem that interested in U.S. population dynamics, in the waning of immigration, in the waning of our sort of childbirth, in sort of all of the West mm-hmm. having fewer and fewer kids. But the implications of this are obviously enormous. Like they know China is a big deal. So like, why is China a big deal? It's not because they're so rich, right? We can talk about semiconductors, but they've got the GDP of Bulgaria, right? But they're not Bulgaria, they're China, because it's 1.2 billion people, right? Demographics are a really big deal. And if we are serious about, you know, national power, national greatness, long-term national security, we need to take those kind of issues into consideration and at least think about the implications of our decision for our standing in the world and for, you know, like, what do we want to say America is all about? Are we ready to accommodate more people? 
I mean, because like I think we think about tweaking immigration mm-hmm. on the margins, and people get nervous about the quality of their roads. Things are already falling mm-hmm. apart all around the country. The metro is not working too hot here most days <laughs> in the city. School capacity. Yeah, it's just like I, I, I guess this comes to infrastructure, right? Biden, yeah. Biden wants to spend two trillion dollars. You like big price tags? Are you excited about Infrastructure Day finally maybe happening? Well, you know what's interesting? Uh, the Federal Highway Administration they do these reports on road quality. Our roads have actually been getting steadily better since, no. since 1992. <laughs> um, no, so of course we have traffic jams, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a, a serious problem, but it kind of technical issue. Like there are fixes, like congestion pricing for traffic jams. Most people don't driving cars. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. maybe that will fix everything. Look, I think like remote work should change how we think yeah. about the economics of sort of big crowded cities uh, because America has lots of space. There are plenty of places you could go where you're not going to have a traffic jam problem. Now schools, look, I mean, if the population grows, you got to build more schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not hard to build a school. You know how to build, right? <laughs> um, you know, and I think that some of this is about... I reject some of the pessimism and like can't do spirit that I think dominates a lot of this thinking, right? Where you say, well, we can't match China's population because to do that, we would need a new high school. I'm like, come on, like, just build a new high school. Like, that. that's not that hard, right? Uh, it's like, it's such a cliche to do the, like, we went to the moon. But, like, we did go to the moon, right? Which was not just expensive, but was a technically difficult, challenging problem. It was not knowable in advance that that would work. Uh, whereas the kind of problems that we're dealing with now, it's like, can we make a train that functions? Can we build a wider road? Can we make another high school? Like, these are very solvable problems. And in fact, like school, schools get built all the time. You know, people have a weird, um, just like desire to cling to the status quo that I think is curious. I, I always, I spend too much time maybe thinking about the slogan, make America great again, because I think it's weird to be so backward looking. But the time that Trump is nostalgic for was a time of more rapid change than the present. It's true. Right? Something people liked about the 50s and 60s is that things were changing a lot. There was a lot of economic growth. There was a lot of prosperity. What that meant is that built environments were changing. People were moving a lot. The population was growing very fast back then. Uh, I'm sure they had some overcrowded schools somewhere along the way, but they didn't let those things stand in their way, right? So if we want to take seriously the idea of greatness and the idea that there was something good in the past that we should recapture, I think we want to recapture some of that spirit of dynamism and belief that we should not let sort of trivial obstacles paralyze us. Trivial about sums it up. Yeah, you mentioned the past, so I want to ask you about the future. Mm. Why do we hate the future so much? Because... (laughs) Most most Hollywood pictures are like really dystopic, right? They I, I don't I can't think of many besides Star Trek that are like, oh, we're gonna maybe one day be enlightened and have everything ordered <laughs> and we're just gonna be fighting aliens. Like every movie I can think of, Elysium, Ready Player One, Star Wars, like these are dark futures. They're not mm-hmm. particularly clean. Even even Star Wars, right? Coruscant. It's beautiful, but it's like a hundred layers deep of poverty and horror. You're just packing people in there. We don't think the future is going to be good. Is that just human problem or negativity bias? Or is there something that we should be actually wary of? I mean, I 
think it tells us something about the present, right? Because some people will say, well, you just like you can't tell an interesting story that's optimistic. But at an earlier time, we got uh, the Jetsons. We got Star Trek. That's true. Right. And so at a time when the present was going better and people were more optimistic about the present, they set stories that had the assumption that the future would be even better. We've given up. And it's not it's not perfect. Right. But like that's the joke in the Jetsons that like you still might have an annoying boss, even if technology could greatly improve your material living standards. It doesn't, quote unquote, solve everything. But it's also not a dystopia. Right. Like it's actually just better. Um, they, they have fewer hours worked. They fly around, uh, their house floats above the pollution, which is a weird solution for air pollution. But, you know, the point is that, like, they were saying, okay, we have problems right now, and in the future, it will be better, because we're gonna have more technology and we're gonna do more stuff. And that's because that was the present day lived experience of the people in that time. People today feel that things are getting worse. And, and I think it's because, it's not really because things are getting worse. But it's because we're seeing improvements in some of the least significant aspects of human life, and we're seeing struggles in some of the most important ones. Yeah. You got a favorite dystopian movie? I don't. That's the one part. <laughs> Apart from you guys talking about the challenges of having kids, because I don't have any, when it comes to the Star Wars aspect of it, it's when I get lost. <laughs> the, the question of thinking big, and this is probably where we should round down, is like, There's some big ideas floating around Washington, D.C. One which I did not like was the Green New Deal because it was like manifesto kind of masquerading as legislation. It was just a bunch of stuff. It should have been a book. Would have been a better (laughs) would have been a better book than it was legislation. Your book, I feel like, takes big thinking, plants it in the ground, says this is not like, you know, specific policy ideas, but this is just ideas for lawmakers to take. But people in D.C. aren't thinking big. Why aren't we able to actually come together on an agenda and instead just like tear each other apart over what SpongeBob episodes need to be censored and whether you drink Coke or Pepsi because of voter laws in Georgia? Like there's just there's no ability to focus. I mean, I think there's been to an extent a lack of creativity. I think one of the things that Trump showed is that regular voters are less locked into the kind of hyper polarized policy ideas that, you know, the professionals have put in. That a kind of outsider guy who connected with conservative values could say a lot of stuff, right? Like, we're going to give everybody health care, he said on the campaign trail. Um, but then, you know, he was too amateurish as president to like really do those things. And we wound up reinscribing the kind of boundaries of polarization. Biden, similarly, you know, he was the most moderate choice in the Democratic field. And he won pretty easily. Like, rank-and-file Democrats preferred a more moderate choice. Um, He is, though, the opposite problem of Trump, right? Which is that he's so experienced that he will sort of sand off the roughest edges of the progressive agenda to Mm -hmm. make it more palatable. But he's not going to, like, be a troublemaker who puts Mm -hmm. things on the table that, like, mess up his coalition. And you need something of a a synthesis, right? Like, Trump's instinct for kind of messing things up, for his own gain with a little more polish and real understanding of of policymaking so that you can dig in and say like, hey guys, like, wouldn't you like a president who was less conventional, who was less bound by this kind of 5149 style politics? I think the evidence is pretty clear from the past two elections that that is in fact what people want, uh, but it's not what the political parties want to give them. Does does that mean that so we mentioned that there's the, the programs to incentivize 
uh, I guess, the growth of population. And we talked about infrastructure. But it is considering the the fact that we are, you know, Republicans and Democrats are very divided now. But the reality is that Biden as president in his I think the day after his uh, inaugural speech uh, talked about immigration, he, he gave mm-hmm. essentially his principles. Uh, and then we saw, uh, you know, Senator Menendez and him with a coalition of, of eight Democrats and uh, House uh, representatives come together on immigration. We're in a border crisis. Is immigration going to be the first step where uh, politicians can sort of increase the, the, the population size? Is that, is that, is that going to be the first sort of piece of this whole puzzle? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, right? I think on immigration, we're now waiting to hear what Republicans really want to say. I mean, I think we know what their criticisms of Biden are, but like, what do they want to do? I think they have totally fair objections to that proposal from Menendez and from Biden. But what he did do was like put on the table a Mm -hmm. list of like actual ideas, right? Not just feelings about immigration, but like ideas. And then a Republican could say, look, my top three priorities are like this, this, and that. And then you can sit down because it's a very multidimensional issue, right? Mm -hmm. I think for a lot, I say this in the book, but like the compromise that seems to me to be on the table is that you switch to more of a quote-unquote, merit-based system, Mm -hmm. as Republicans say they want, but you don't cut the numbers in half, right, the way Cotton's bill does. Because if the immigrants were better, right, if we, whatever, however you define merit, if you get the immigrants that Tom Cotton thinks are most meritorious, well, why shouldn't we have a lot of them, right? Like, we're going to make the immigrants way better, but also fewer? Like, that doesn't make sense, right? And so have that discussion about legal immigration. And then we can talk about, you know, border security and asylum, all those things around the side. But the core of the immigration system is the legal system. And Democrats have a proposal for it. And Republicans right now sort of don't. Matt, how do we stop clustering on the East and West Coast, all the prosperity that is racking up on each side, Mm -hmm. everything dies in the middle. We want to increase immigration. We want people to have more kids. But I feel like we've been going back and forth in this conversation about like a chicken and egg problem. Mm -hmm. We want to have the kids. We want them to go find jobs. We want to grow our families. But they're going to stay in those major metros because that's where life is happening. And we talked about markets. They're not pushing people in. All the headquarters are going Mm -hmm. to the big cities. Is there a way to force <laughs> to force that to happen in a way that's not like dictatorial and anti-market? Yeah, so I mean, in the book, I say the sort of first step we should take is looking at government agencies and where we can relocate them. You know, some stuff, like it's got to be in D.C. or the D.C. area, but like the patent office doesn't need to be here. It's not like the president needs to, you know, have a rush meeting uh, with those guys. <laughs> yeah. And there's lots of stuff like that, right? I mean, the, the, the public sector has a lot of functions that are not super political. They're good jobs, they're skilled. Uh, It could be people will be better off in the end, taking their salaries to a lower cost of living metro area. I do think that the government should look. It does violate free market principles, but I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world to call up the CEOs of the big tech companies and be like, you know what? If you guys weren't all in one state, People might like you better. You might you might sort of have a little more clout in Congress. Uh, Josh Hawley wouldn't be yelling at you all the time if your headquarters was in St. Louis. I don't know. Who could have heard um, about that? <laughs> you know, and, and I, I mean, I think you could nudge in that direction. Also, I mean, I, I conceived this whole book, you know, before the pandemic, before the great Zoom boom. And I don't know how that's going to change things. I mean, I think a lot of credible people think that we're going to see a natural disaggregation, which would be great, right? I mean, if we didn't need a big policy 
lever to just get people to start moving to lower cost of living places, but the opportunities naturally reallocated themselves, that'd be a very happy outcome. Uh, the government should do what it can to support that, right? I mean, I do think that we should make sure that small towns and rural areas have fast broadband internet connections. Mm-hmm. We should make sure that the federal government is not putting barriers in a way. We don't want people to like lose their health insurance if they don't live in the state where their employer is. Right now, you can create a lot of complications that for the pandemic, we sort of agreed to not look too hard at what people are doing or what residencies they're claiming. Uh, but we should, you know, we should have like a like a task force, like go through all of the laws and say like, look, is there something here that unintentionally is creating a barrier Another to remote work? We need a regulation <laughs> czar, man. <laughs> There's an office like that. There's an office of information and regulatory affairs. You should tell them like we want to look at all this stuff with a remote work lens and just see what the implications are of the because there's a lot of rules in the federal register um, and they were not built for this. But I think we should try to encourage the use of technology to solve some of these problems. Well, we've covered so much and simultaneously so little. The book is fantastic. (laughs) Uh, It is One Billion Americans. We've been joined today by Matt Iglesias. You should pick up this book. And we've also been giving away some this week on the Twitter. So follow us there at RightlyAJ. And you can get yours. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This was fun. Washington is buzzing, as usual, with anticipation over a new book on the House from former House Speaker John Boehner. Politico ran a lengthy essay adapted from it, and as expected, it is uninhibited in classic Boehner form. Now, in keeping with the tone of the book cover, let's dim the lights a little bit and enjoy a fine, non-alcoholic beverage. In Salute, honor of Steven. John. Salute. Where are the cigarettes? Did you bring them? No, that's the key. Can we actually talk about John Boehner without having cigarettes? I am told we are not allowed to smoke in the studio, so the game is off. Now, let's read, let's read a couple of these excerpts because they are, they are gold. Um, all right. Now, Boehner speaking of the 2010 midterms. You could be a total moron, get elected just by having an R next to your name. And that year, by the way, we did pick up a fair number in that category. <laughs> That's mean. I mean <laughs> Look. But they got him elected to speaker. Where's the kudos to that? Well, they did. Trade-offs everywhere, right? Now, Boehner reminds us in an earlier time in U.S. politics, that seems almost quaint now. When he was first elected to Congress way back in 1990, he recalls, we didn't have any propaganda organization for conservatives, except maybe a magazine or two, National Review. The only people who used the internet were some geeks in Palo Alto. There was no Drudge Report, no Breitbart, no kooks on YouTube, spreading dangerous nonsense (laughs) like they did every day about Obama. Oh, man. He's he's America's dad. Come on. And here's what you got to remember. The buzz goes beyond political. This is what we're seeing on Twitter and social media in general. Let me read you this from Oliver Willis, a writer of the American Independent. He says, I see we're at the phase where John Boehner pretends to be a moderate who keeps the crazies at bay while we watch him stoke the fires for years. The sad thing is this will work. The press loves the narrative and liberals like to think all this was back then, back in the day. Now hear this one. Check this out from David R. The experts are great. It is clearly in Boehner's voice and no punches are pulled. Nonetheless, when you find yourself reminiscing about the good old days when Boehner was in charge, you know America has really taken a turn in a very bad way. Man, 
There is such thing, though, as like a time when things worked, right? Like Congress's approval rating only goes down year over year. Is it really that bad just to look back See, with a little bit of nostalgia? And, and when you look at folks like Boehner, you can understand he understood the mechanics, right? Before before Trump, when everyone was using DealMaker and Art of the Deal, John Boehner was one of those guys. I mean, he was looking to work with both sides to cut deals even within his own party to get stuff done. All right. And then our last one here is from Alex Skoltnik, a self-described thrash guitarist. And he says that he felt a sudden urge to put on a leisure suit, grab a vintage archtop guitar, and accompany Boehner with retro jazz stylings a la Steve Allen accompanying Kerouac. And he did just that. Freedom means you can be a genius in inventing products that make you millions of dollars and helps millions of people. It means you're free to work your way to becoming the first in your family to go to college. It means you're free to reach as high as you want, no matter where you came from, even if you're a little kid sweeping a bar out in Southwest Ohio. Take it from me. You'll never know where you'll end up. That's freedom. I'll raise a glass to that any day. P.S. Ted Cruz, go f*** yourself. We raise our glasses with you, John. Oh my God! That's the bit that's I, going viral. People are I, talking about it. I don't. I don't buy many political memoirs, but I will buy this one. I think I will it, pick it up. It's going to be a good read. But I think the audio book now, because of all the off-scripted comments from Boehner, might be the way to go. This is what he's always done. He says bad words, and people are like, "Oh man, he's so cool." John Boehner goes off script. But like, I do want to stand up for Boehner for just a moment because there's been a lot of relitigating. His tenure since mm-hmm. we had House Speaker Paul Ryan, Nancy Pelosi, um, House uh, former House member Justin Amash, and since he has left Congress, has been doing a lot of interviews talking yeah. about as somebody who helped kick Boehner out of the Speaker's yeah. office and put Paul Ryan in regret because Paul Ryan was one of the most restrictive speakers mm-hmm. in the the history of the office to cut members of Congress out of the process of making laws. And I actually am now looking back on Boehner as going like this was a transactional guy and what you need to make Congress work is some sort of transactional politics. Yeah, I think something that Amash has said, but also many other members, when they had these stories, right, these stories of John Boehner pulling them to the side, sometimes with that cigarette in his hand, is that (laughs) Boehner was an honest guy. I mean, we know him for someone who says curse words. I'll never forget during the, the big shutdown against Obama, he comes out, he says, and he, and he looks into the camera looking at lawmakers, said, let's do our goddamn job, mm-hmm. right? I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that here. But I remember John Boehner is one of those folks that says how he sees it, but then works with you. He's honest, but he allows you into the process, the amendment process, which Amash has talked about. And I think that's part of the mechanics that I was talking about earlier. He understands those. Yeah, I mean, Paul Ryan cut off the amendment process entirely. Basically, you then had a system in which the House leadership creates all the bills, and then they just corral everybody into voting for it, and they cut you out of good graces with the leadership. Mm -hmm. They keep you off of committees if you don't back every single thing. And what Amash has talked about, which I just love, is like the idea of making laws is supposed to be discovery. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be getting everybody in the house together, figuring out what everybody needs, and then making the law. But right now, it's just top down. It's predetermined from the get-go. The the famous quote that says, my uh, enemy at 20% doesn't have to be, if I agree with you on 80%, doesn't mean we have to be enemies on the 20%. What I think that allows is, folks, like, find that common ground. 
right? Amash, even within the Republican Party during that time with Boehner, they were able to work together in certain areas, even though Amash was the guy who was always voting against him as speaker. Well, I know why people are sensitive about doing rehabs of people's reputations after they leave Congress, you know, leave mm -hmm. D.C. after they've made millions, right, and they go back to private life. I get why that is unsavory. But we should also be able to look back and be like, things used to work, and now they don't. They used to get passed. Why, why is that? All right. Well, there is some good news still out there, and we always like to end every show with a bit of a positive trend in the country. I've got one for you. Preliminary data from the CDC and put together by the JAMA Network shows that suicide in the U.S. declined in 2020 by about 5.7%. That's thousands fewer people who took their own lives in the past year. And while it's still a picture that's coming together, we don't know all of the whys mm -hmm. about it, this is good. And one of my colleagues who knows a lot more about this and studies it more closely was talking about one of the main drivers is people left the cities because mm -hmm. of the pandemic um, and then moved back in with their families, went back out to more rural areas where they could wait this whole thing out in some sort of semblance of, of peace, right, with people that they know. And we should be looking at that and going like, all right, maybe we do need to spread back out again per our conversation with Iglesias today. And interesting enough, I fit into that data point, lived in D.C., but then when the pandemic hit, moved not too far, but into Maryland, uh, where my family is. And actually on my good news, if I could share, Stephen, is a local story from Hyattsville, Maryland. Uh, two police officers, one of them, Officer Andrickson Franco, uh, responded to a call of someone who, uh, by the gas station's notes, was acting crazy, was acting out of the normal, and was asked if they could arrest this person. These officers uh, showed up and automatically, or from the start, recognized that this person was having a, a mental health episode, a crisis. And I mean, we know that now during the pandemic, and even before the pandemic, there are a lot of people going through very difficult times, and, and mental health is front and center for a lot of people. So these officers, instead of arresting the individual, really tried to build trust in them. There's a, there's a photo actually where the officer sits down on the floor and begins to talk to the gentleman, begins to calm him down to the point where he was able to get the gentleman's phone, was able to call the brother. The brother was wondering where this guy, where his brother was, came to the gas station, helped calm the situation completely down. To the end of the day, no one got arrested. No one got hurt. The officers were able to identify and uh, call the brother, and at the end of the day, he went home with his family. The officers also went back home. I think this is good news because we're seeing how officers are building trust, are recognizing the role of mental health in the community. To, to serve and protect, right? Exactly. It is to keep the community safe and all the people safe. It is not to just like eliminate problems. Like that is not yep. just the job of policing is to like, there's person causing problems on Main Street, get them out of here. It's to help everybody, it's, and that person has just as much of a right as anyone else. It's building that trust and bridging the divides that sometimes exist in that community. Wow, that was great good news. Thanks, Wadi. That is it for us this week on Right Now. Thank you for being here, and do remember to subscribe on YouTube. Leave a comment if you'd like. You can also like us at RightlyAJ on Twitter and Facebook, and check back next week. Andrew Heaton will be here. He's a comedian, author, political satirist, and podcaster behind the Political Orphanage podcast, and all around well-styled guy. We'll see you then.